it's beginning to feel a lot like Christmas. And it if sure you are, is. <laughs> is, isn't it? I know. And and if you're looking for something, the perfect gift for a friend or for yourself, I recommend. Maybe you can recommend it because it sounds really self-serving and narcissistic when I recommend it. Um, the wonderful oral history of Star Trek, uh, the well, 50-year mission. Would that be the 50-year mission? Uh, volume one be. and two? Volume one. Now, I want to make an important distinction. Volume one, available now in paperback. Volume two, only in hardcover still. Right. So, But you can get the audio version, get the digital version. You can get them all. Because maybe them you all. want them get all. Get all of them. You know, because that would be ideal. I, I would prefer <laughs> you get them all. Because I had my, my druthers, as they say. And then, of course, also... Our other books, which are worth checking out, Nobody Does It Better, also available in hardcover and now in paperback. That's about uh, James Bond, isn't it? How'd you guess? I just about James Bond. Because nobody does it better, that's why. It's a great book about James Bond. So as you get ready for the inevitable release of uh, No Time to Die sometime in the next decade. There's no time um, to release. (laughs) You want to pick up No Time to Die, again, also available on digital, audio, and in hardcover and paperback from, uh, from Tor Forge. And uh, if you want to do a deeper dive, check out uh, So So Say We All, our oral history of both Battlestar Galactica series, which is only available in hardcover. And I don't believe there's an audio book. I just think a digital. I'm not sure why they didn't do an audio book. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we can I'll, do something about that. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll just record <laughs> our own and we'll, we'll show them. So uh, anyway, uh, if you're thinking about the holidays and wondering what to get, please uh, check out uh, my books uh, with Ed Gross. The 50-Year Mission, Volume 1 and 2, So Say We All, An Oral History of Battlestar Galactica, and most recently, Nobody Does It Better, A Complete Oral History of the James Bond Films and Spy Mania. Ed Gross will thank you. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download the it. app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff too. You go to the app store. It says electric now. You download it. And then it. in press, the United States. Press the button and there it is. There it is. And you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy and episodes of all your favorite electric surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the electric now app and start enjoying us anytime. Welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. As always, I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and joining me is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. Uh, We are going to pick right back up in our Wonder Woman conversation from when we left off before with our guests, Clark Wolf, Amy Dallin, and Hector Navarro. So, Josh, one thing I wanted to ask you in particular, I noticed when I was reading the Alcott script was um, the amount of action that was written out and scripted out. I mean, it felt to me, and I don't know if this is actually it, but it felt to me like it was two thirds action written out and like one third dialogue. Um, You know, you are a working screenwriter. Did you feel like that was 
excessive. It felt hard to read for me, but I'm curious if, if what your like thoughts are on that much. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, again, I don't want to throw that specific script under the bus because I feel it is a very standard problem with all scripts. Uh, I, as a screenwriter, actually hate reading scripts. I would compare it to when you just read the lyrics to a song without the music. It's like, obviously there are exceptions, but Generally speaking, if you're only reading the lyrics to a song, it sounds like high school poetry. Like, it's just like, <laughs> this is horrible. You almost can't imagine that it could become a good song. So when you're watching something with reading a script without the actors, because there's also so many examples of boring characters who are made great by good actors, the right directing. Um, and action in particular is tough because it's always a balance because you need, this is a blueprint especially if it's something you're trying to like sell someone on. It's like they have to understand what's happening. But one thing I think after you've written enough scripts, you also realize everyone hates reading blocking. So they skip over it. And sometimes people will give you a note where they're like, well, I feel like how we never explained where this came from. And you're in that awkward position where you're talking to like a powerful executive and you're just like, no, it's in there. You just didn't see it. You big dummy. Um, but, uh, I, so it's, it, it's a balance. I feel Shane Black is someone who does it really well because he acknowledges that this is stuff that someone's reading, the audience doesn't read it. So he'll like swear in his blocking and he'll give things like really absurd descriptions because um, he understands that uh, this has to be fun to read. And action is very tough. It's also weird as a writer because no one's going to listen to your ideas for the action unless it's really narratively relevant. Like, you know, you're describing a thing that has to happen or the scene won't make sense. Any action you describe, they're going to change. So. Well, and also like in a, in the Joss Whedon script, when there's action, you're like, okay, but he's going to be directing this. That is a little so, different, but exactly. even then though, it's still, it's still probably going to change. I mean, that, that's just something I think Marvel really figured out. And I find it odd that people give them crap for it. Because I'm like, this is why the movies are good, is that they can just get whatever art house director they want now. And it doesn't matter if they have any sense for action, because it's more like a TV show. You have your action team. They're going to work with the director. The director will have input. But by and large, it's just like, yeah, don't worry about the action. You worry about the movie overall, the stuff with the actors. We have people whose job it is to plan out the fucking coolest newest action sequence you can think of um so yeah to answer your question it's like it is it, i end up skipping it oh, i hate when i have to go back in a script because i realized i missed something i'm like who's this guy what's happening ah even i do it the thing that i get mad that executives do um, that's a really interesting point about uh, that, like letting someone plug in action, because obviously there are times where the specific way you kick someone is not necessarily a reflection on the history of your character in mythology. But I would say as superhero fans, we all recognize that like the really great examples of, and I'm going to use the wrong terms for like, but set pieces uh, or like ways of doing action absolutely are tied to mythology and character. And it, it gets us very fired up because doing that creatively in a way that reflects the character in the mythology is part of what we cheer for. It's not whether Superman will win, it's how he wins, you know. Uh, so I, I, that's an interesting balance of like, you have to put it all in the script, but know that they're going to throw it away, but know that somebody else will come in to work with you on it. And I, I don't envy y'all the task of figuring out. Yeah, you have out. to do the best job you can <laughs> knowing that all of it's going to change or none of it'll be there. <laughs> but you are, again, I, you know, I feel like 
certainly in the cinephile world, the Marvel movies get a lot of crap for being stupid. But I feel that that is people talking don't really know how hard it is to make a movie and especially to make a movie people like, like mm -hmm. that a lot of people like and that nerds like and normal people like. And Amy, like you were saying, I feel that just something about how Captain America uses his shield in the movie is like perfect. Like that's what you want if you like Captain America and they're crushing it. It's not a movie where you're, <laughs> you, you can imagine the Captain America movie where fans were just like, why did he only use his shield once? He didn't even throw it at anybody. <laughs> These movies don't need a groundbreaking director to come in and, and challenge the way that action is thought of because they're adaptations of action characters that already have that stuff figured out. What they need is directors and storytellers to come in and figure out how to do characters, yes. to get people to care about a character so that when he lifts Mjolnir, when he's fighting Thanos, the audience loses their shit. Why? Because we like Chris Evans as Steve Rogers. Not because that's my favorite character because the way that this other cool groundbreaking director came in on his sequel and they really did cool stuff with the camera to, to you know, 360 around the, oh, it has never been done in a movie before. Who cares? These are action movies that are, have already been storyboarded. The storyboards are the comics themselves. But bring in directors to get me to care about Diana Prince and Steve Rogers and Thor Odinson and Loki and Peter Parker and all of these characters. That's what, that's what they need. And yeah. I guess kind of looping back and putting a button on that, Clark, from your question as to the Elcott script or any of these scripts. Because the other funny thing is, is again, we think like, why wouldn't you make a Wonder Woman movie? Although obviously we wouldn't be talking about these if they'd made them. Um, and I just went through this on like the Sonic sequel, which again, in what world weren't they going to make the Sonic 2 is how we felt about it. But it's like, you know, they still might not. Uh, they haven't made Detective Pikachu part two yet, you know, for example. So it's like, and again, we know, we wouldn't talk about it, the director was like, this scene's probably not going to be in the movie. But it's like, we really need to get them fired up about it, them being paramount to pull the trigger and release the money that gets the movie made. So they do kind of have to write it all out. I do think, though, there is a way to do it. Because even the, even the heads of the studio, they're not going to read all the blocking if it... In fact, that might be why they don't do the movie, is they're just like, I hated reading this. It was a real chore. Um, so it's a, it's a fine balance. Uh, I will say, Hector, I feel like you're a little bit underselling what directors bring to the table in terms of, you know, obviously part of what made Doctor Strange work was that it looked and felt different in a way that was specific to him. And part of what made Black Panther work is that they sold us the world of Wakanda and the production design around it in a way that was totally. convincing. So just to, you know, I, everyone's doing important work. <laughs> absolutely. Listen, I'm Why just trying to go to back. <laughs> because I think it's a little bit of a myth. I, you know, that, <laughs> that, that, that I, the idea of the sort of like, like, don't mess with me and don't stifle me. I'm a creative vision. Well, then you shouldn't make a Batman film because that <laughs> character requires some constraints. You're not just going to switch up a genre or edit things in a memento way. And Christopher Nolan did great Batman movies. He did great movies. Are they the best versions of Batman? Absolutely not. No way. And there's a bunch that are kind of lacking in those movies in that sense. Um, do I think that like, Captain America the Winter Soldier is the best movie ever? No. Is it the best Captain America movie? Maybe. Because Captain America, the character, has certain limitations. I think Scorsese's right, but he's also kind of wrong because, you know, Scorsese's saying brilliantly, these movies are, are theme park rides, which is true. I think he's also talking about the difference between something that has these kind of creative limitations and a film that we would consider that doesn't. But The Irishman still has limitations. It's a drama 
and 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 that story will have in like built in it's not a fantasy movie and he he's not going to introduce a ghost two thirds into the Irishman like Although that's you I know I would have loved that exactly that so I would prefer that all, actually every movie ever made is working within a certain set of rules it's just how that story is told and what appeals to audiences and how we can connect to people and characters and the universal truths within these stories I'm just such a huge fan of the honestly the pipeline the marvel studios pipeline i love that their concept artists i think they're the best working in the business i love the team like you said josh the action team the people who put their storyboard artists the people who already decide all that stuff and go whenever we make a doctor strange movie we need to make sure to have this this and this in an action beat how cool is that well then let's bring in scott derrickson to do what he does but also get us to care about stephen strange and wong and the ancient one and all that stuff and i think he nailed it with that stuff so yeah, I just I'm I'm trying to go to bat for the the collaboration that these movies require. Yeah, and I think Hector, like to your point, I like how you said it, which was we, we don't need to reinvent an action sequence. Like that's that's something that will be done. It's it's you have to you have to you, you know you have to convince you don't have to convince the Martin Scorsese's of the world, but it's like you know the idea of like oh all these movies are the same oh who cares and it's like well that is the job that's the job is mm-hmm. to convince an audience to care mm-hmm. and um you know sometimes you do get it with like a visual pairing a visual style like Doctor Strange I think Thor Ragnarok is another example mm-hmm. of blending you are very invested in all of the characters, but also visually it pushes those boundaries. But as you said, Hector, the movies are storyboarded because they're comic books. They're based on panels, you know? So, so I, I get, I appreciate what you're saying and, and I, I agree with your assessment. Well, I think yeah. for these movies, uh, which again, you know, kind of go back to what you're saying is you want to get interesting filmmakers, but you also want to get, it's casting itself. Like they always say casting is important. You're also casting the writer and the director. Um, like when they announced Kenneth Branagh for Thor, I was like, some people were like, what? And I'm like, no, awesome. I know exactly, you know exactly what Asgard's what, that's gonna look exactly like. Thank God, yeah. Uh, like that's a fun idea there, uh, which I think is a good segue to the next script is, and again, no offense to Todd Elcott, um, but he's an example of someone where you're, you might wonder, well, why get the guy who wrote Ants? to write a Wonder Woman movie. I'm sure that there were pitch meetings where that made sense to everyone. Um, the writer of our next script, it seems like the exact kind of person you hire for a Wonder Woman script. I'm sure I'm gonna butcher her name. I think it's Leda Caligridis. Does anyone Lita. know? What? Oh. Say it again, Amy. I think it's Leda Caligridis. Yeah. Caligridis, that's a big oh, yeah. sounding Actually, to rewind, to rewind really quick, right after Alcote, Todd Alcott, yeah, his name, yeah. Uh, Becky Johnson, who wrote uh, *Prince of Tides*, Seven Years in Tibet*, and she wrote an unproduced uh, *Salt* two sequel, *Salt* sequel that never came out. Uh, she did a rework of the draft, or I can't tell if she reworked the draft or she did her own draft of *Wonder Woman* sometime in like 2001. And then in uh, 2003, there was another announce- There was another writer attached. Um, May two thousand, May second, two thousand three, X Men two came out and it was a really big hit, as everyone knows. That May twelfth, um, a screenwriter named Philip Levins was hired to come on board, and he was a writer for Smallville. And um, he said that he was going to take cues from the seventies TV show, equipping, equipping Diana Prince alter ego with bulletproof uh, bracelets and the boomerang tiara 
Sandra Bullock has been considered in recent years, but now producer Leonard Goldberg, who did Charlie's Angels, as we said, he says he'll cast an actress in her early to mid-20s instead. Rumor has it um, Sarah Michelle Gellar is hot for the part. <laughs> so that was announced. And, um, and so two months later, now uh, Lieta, uh I cannot say her name. Now she Lita, has been announced. Lita Calagridis? Is that what Yeah, Lita, Yes. So three months after his announcement of that writer, now she's attached to this project. And she's number five, it looks like. Screenwriter number five. And yet, Well, um, she's someone we'd love to get on the show because she has oh, yeah. an unproduced X-Men script, an unproduced Catwoman script, an unproduced Joan of Arc script. Tomb Raider um, also. Yeah, Tomb Raider. And, but she created the short-lived birds of prey tv show the more we recent know all okay. about it josh miller <laughs> i'm telling the audience not you guys i know but we uh, we did a, a full oh, yeah? watch of that show on how's it hold up wow not good josh yeah. mixed bag mixed bag uh, I just remember well, that it had two different pilots because her therapist was Sherilyn Fenn in one version and the actress from ferris bueller's day off in the Sarah, other one. Yeah. i don't remember which one was the replacement well, Mia actually, Sarah plays Harley Quinn, and she's the therapist, so she's with this thing for the whole show. But Calgary mm-hmm. also uh, wrote Shutter Island, co-wrote Alita Battle Angel. Again, she seems she's the person you get to write one Roman movie. It just makes sense on paper. Uh, uh, actually, interesting is that she just got announced last month. She's doing. She wrote uh, Cleopatra, that Gal Gadot and uh, uh, Patty Jenkins is directing. So well, interesting, yeah. I'd say it's coming full <laughs> circle, but not quite. It's more just a weird coincidence. <laughs> um, so she, she was attached September 2003, and I believe the draft we're reading is the fourth draft from 2004, August yeah, 2004. fourth draft, 2004. So just kind of quick overview summary. This one now is a Wonder Woman movie. It's about, about Wonder Woman music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about, about the, the classic Diana, Wonder Woman. Uh, it begins uh, on Amazon Island uh, and has Steve Trevor and follows, you know, it's not the same as the finished movie, but we've now entered the phase where it seems like they've accepted what a Wonder Woman should be, Wonder Woman movie should be. They're not fighting it as hard as the Donna Troy version. Just, this is a script I didn't read. Is it a period piece or is it set in the modern day? Set modern in the modern day. day. Cool, cool. Okay. Um, and who else read this one? I read this one. I also read this one. Uh, do you guys have any kind of big picture thoughts on it before we dig in? Ames, do you want to go first? You know, I I was sort of bracing myself, even though like I, I like a lot of Telegram's work, but you know, given that I knew that this movie never got made and that I as you all have alluded to, the different pressures behind the scenes that influence what does and doesn't make it into movies. There was a lot of stuff I sort of fought with in this movie, but I think if I had to say overall, like if this had made it to screen, I would have been like, cool, a Wonder Woman movie. Didn't love that, you know, this twist or that side story. And we spent like a lot of time with Steve, but like, uh, you know, and then the, some of the, the, they sort of cram in the, the actual bad guy plot and the mythology stuff. I like, okay, I'm trying to find the right way to say this. I'm not sure that it would, have been sort of like the poetic and transcendent putting across of the character that I consider the 2017 one to be. Uh, but I, I don't think I would have been, I would have been medium mad about this. I don't know. I think it would have, 
mostly worked. And again, maybe they would have sanded out the couple of things that I didn't love uh, in it uh, on the way. Is that just the, the worst lukewarm reaction? I don't know. I think it was surprisingly good. I, I think uh, that that was my reaction as well, where I, was, I wasn't like, this is not an example of a script where I shook my fists towards the heavens when I was done and be like, why didn't they make this? But I also wasn't like, oh, no, wow, so thank God they didn't make yeah. this. Uh, it's fine. Like it does a lot, It does, especially compared to the other one in just that it's about Wonder Woman feels <laughs> like a major yeah, step a- up. Um, you know, in, in the period piece or not period piece, you know, it's like they didn't set Spider-Man in the 60s. It's not mm-hmm. like you have to go Right. when the character was first established um so i you know I, I was i was basically fine with everything it does it's funny the similarities between this and the whedon version as far and even the finished version is that we kind of get steve trevor's like team of wacky dudes i think in this one actually in both this and whedon it's more of a co-ed team of well, wacky one sidekicks one girl who would have been the only girl if it weren't a wonder woman movie um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and also, I guess what's interesting in reading this is the ways it does and does. And again, this is 2004 and Kelly Greedis was just the screenwriter. She doesn't have the power to do whatever she wants. Um, but the ways that this is and isn't like necessarily a super female voice heavy script. I mean, I don't know how what you guys thought about that. Um, to me, it pretty much read not as bad as the previous one. But um, yeah. and I guess I, I don't want to get too far ahead of us in. The Whedon one, but as far as some of the the shit that script has gotten when people have posted like snippets of it out of context online, like this one, it's still you know when Diana Prince shows up, it describes how fucking super hot she is and everything. Uh, but so a, does this one. That's what I'm saying. So yeah, does, yeah, 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 it's exactly. The, it's a 2004 studio movie script. Yeah. that needs yeah. to excite the head of the studio and get them to want to make the movie. Um, one thing that I did want to point out, big picture, is that I really like when we're doing her origin in this one, um, the idea that Ares is her father and what they do with that in terms of her struggling with her rage and her struggling with her anger. Because I think that we still are not comfortable watching women be angry. And there are there are legitimate family things where you can be angry at the, you know, Supergirl um, did the Red Tornado episode in season one. There is this amazing conversation between uh, James Olsen, played by McCod Brooks, and, and Kara, played by uh, Melissa Benoist, where the red tornado is like, bring, she has to access her anger, her fucking rage in order to, you know, fight the red tornado. And Jim, James Olsen says like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a black man. I feel angry all the time, you know? And I think that this is what, at the end of the day, what comics are, it's the metaphor, right? It's like, you can have these conversations. So I liked how in this script that we specifically address that um, Diana is struggling with anger and that part of her. And I, cause we don't see that. We see her as this pure, honest, you know, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. she's not powerful and doesn't mean she mm-hmm. doesn't strike back when in, in the 2017 version either. But, but I liked, I liked that Lita specifically puts that in there and it is a thing that she has to do. I would with. say if kind of each of these, you know, you were to pluck out, like what is the thing that, 
that, that is different about this that the other scripts and the finished one didn't do. Obviously, the last one is that it's about Donna Troy. And now what I'd say is this one is the arc of the idea that because she's part, she's related to the villain, you know, I guess classic Skywalker Vader scenario is that throughout the movie, she is finding herself pulled into just being like a rage monster and needs to come to terms with and overcome that by the end. Um, and yeah, that this, like like the movie that got made in this one, Ares is the villain. And I guess, what is Ares' role in the DC universe? That's a character I'm not that familiar with. Um, it's a lot like I, this. He shows up to cause trouble. So uh, he is a villain. Yes. <laughs> well, and yeah, Ares I, is the god of war, right? Yeah. In, yeah. I used to know if he was sometimes a good guy, sometimes a bad guy. Hector, has he been a good guy? I don't think so. I think um, another important thing to point out for Wonder Woman mythos is that it is, you know, it's a pantheon that is based on the Greek gods. And even that shares some similarities to Marvel comics, because along with Thor and the Asgardian gods, Marvel also has the Greek gods. They're also characters, right? If Thor exists, it means that kind of every pantheon of gods exists, Native American gods, Japanese gods. It's really interesting. In Marvel comics, Hercules is a good guy. In DC Comics, Hercules is Heracles, and he is a bad guy, and straight across a bad guy, and is an enemy of the Amazons. And I think Ares is is probably as think about how much of an impact the character of Loki has had in like the Marvel movies. How much of a presence Loki? He keeps coming back. He you know he's the god of mischief. But they've, uh, he's also been kind of known as the god of evil or the, the, the trickster god or whatever his, his role is as a god. He kind of does it in the Thor movies and in the Avengers movies, but he has this big impact and a big presence. Ares is kind of like that too. He does show up frequently as maybe Wonder Woman's biggest threat. Maybe not her arch enemy, but she's, he's almost like a Thanos to her and her villain, uh, you know, rogues gallery. He's like the big bad, the big, big bad. Once, Than once Ares is defeated then you know men will be free of wanting to war and it's warring nature so it's interesting that like in the 2017 movie Ares straight up dies but then once he dies the movie's like nope men are still bad <laughs> it wasn't just him like you know um so uh so that's sort of his 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 responsibility and his role and in a second version of the wonder girl character not donna troy but cassie sandsmark that character who is a second young woman who ends up becoming wonder girl has a relationship with Ares where Ares is her father. Is that right? Or like uncle or something like Zeus something to dad, do. Yep. Zeus is her father. That's right. But Ares shows up and gives her weapons and he's like kind of joined the dark side. The fact that Ares in this script is Wonder Woman's father, biological father, I feel like is correct me if I'm wrong, Amy, a pretty recent development in the comic books only Hadn't since 2011 yet in the comics when this script was written. Uh, yeah. it, I think I, I don't know what they were basing this on, but as far as I can tell, a new idea uh, to change up Wonder Woman's origin from being made from clay uh, mm -hmm. and um, give her a godly parent. Amy and Hector, didn't we watch a um, animated film that was very similar to like opening scene and closing scene? I feel like I have seen depicted this the Hippolyta and a and a bad man coming together, being in love or having a, a torrid affair. Probably. Did they Probably. do it in Bloodlines, the animated movie? I can't recall, but if we saw the tw the 2007 Wonder Woman, or sorry, 2009 
Wonder Woman animated film, uh, Ares is voiced by Alfred Molina. And I believe that's he it. and he and Hippolyta had like a romantic yes, affair. That's it. And I, I still think that Diana was made from clay in that movie, mm. but like Ares is the big bat and he gets killed <laughs> at the end and then sent to Hades where then he has to be, um, uh, uh, what's his name? I guess Hades is, uh, uh, no, what's the Greek God that's down there? Hades. Pluto. I don't know. It's Hades. Is it Hades? Yeah. And Pluto's he was voiced by Oliver. Romanized version. Thank you. He was voiced by Oliver Platt, which was really fun. He was this big, like very overweight, de decadent God that was then forcing Ares to like be his slave and do my bidding. So that was fun. Uh, and this opening that we're talking about, as we'll watch into it, is that we begin on Themyscira. Wait, I said that right. Sounded wrong when I said mm -hmm. it. Sure. <laughs> Amazon Island. <laughs> Wasn't it, it used to be called something else originally? Paradise Island. Paradise, Paradise Island. Island. Um, <laughs> We begin there, Hippolyta's in bed. Uh, a man shows up that it seems like, you know, she's a, her lover or whatever. It's Ares and he just like full on kills her um, very violently. A bunch of warriors are attacking the city, you know, the gates open, just killing people all over the place. This is ultimately building up to him going to, which I Googled is a thing from the comics, uh, of Doom's Doorway or something, or? So a lot of versions of the Paradise Island mythology, uh, some of them are just like, they left the world of man because the world of man sucks. And some of them are sort of like, they left the world of man because they have a sacred mission or duty. Um, they wanted to give, to, sort of add to a piece of the mythology there. And often it is guarding something, either guarding like, you know, horrible criminals of the Greek God world or dangerous weapons of the Greek God world or the doorway to the underworld, which is a very common version of it. Uh, and so that's sort of the, like the sacred trust that it, that's what they're off doing separated from the rest of the world so i i feel like this was a version of that for sure yeah and we don't quite know what the doors are yet they're just these big ornate doors uh he's trying to open them um and then some unknown force who i mean pretty obvious that it's going to be zeus who else could it be whisks all the amazons away uh aries is left and he's like i will have it do you hear me i will have what is mine uh, and then we jump forward to present day and we're in the middle of a Top Gun style scene of Steve Trevor and his <laughs> wacky band of fellow pilots. I just pilots. call them all Howling Commandos. Anytime somebody yeah. has like a team. Steve Trevor I and his Howling Commandos. Um, and they're, they're uh, what's the word? Wow, I'm having a total brain fart. They're protecting the vice president, uh, you know, protecting him through the sky when some enemy... I think it's North Korean jets show up. Uh, which is, I always think it's funny when they act like North Korea has some sort of army you're really going to get into a true they battle with. Never really explain all of that. It's just... It's, it's just there. <laughs> Are we talking about Top Gun still? Because that sounds <laughs> yeah. like we're talking about Top, Top Gun. Top Gun 2. Um, <laughs> have you guys seen that movie? Top Gun 2? Yeah. No. no. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you guys got like a... <laughs> press screening or something at some point. You guys haven't seen the Wonder Woman sequel, right? No, I have not. Correct. No. Um, but so they're attacked by these enemy fighters with North Korean markings on them is what they say. Um, and we're meanwhile, we're cutting back and forth to a shadowy man and his henchman, who's named Miller, who are kind of monitoring all this. Um, big twist, which is not much of a twist because it's like literally two pages or so after <laughs> we just saw Ares 
kill Hippolyta in the cold open, but the face moves out of the shadows and the shadowed man is Ares. <laughs> I thought that was a little weird. I'm like, why not just say he's Ares? You're normally if it's the shadowed man, that's the character where it's a big twist midway through the movie who they mm. are. Um, but then sort of the relevant thing that happens here is that Steve Trevor is doing some very Maverick and Top Gun style impossible flying move where all the other Howling Commandos, as I will now just call them because <laughs> that feels apt. They're like, no, you can't do it. You're, no one can do that move. Your plane will rip apart. And he ends up piercing through time and space and winds up in the world of the Amazons. Um, and Ares is like, what? No! And, but he also sees that he's broken through to a Themyscira and kind of realizes like, oh my God, I think what's even his line about something about how he's found it or whatever. Um, before we cut back to Steve Trevor then, uh, and this, that was actually, I found this entertaining, is Ares pulls off his like, you know, old timey evil cloak and he's just wearing like a suit and tie underneath it. And we find out that he's the head of this big evil corporation uh, <laughs> and like goes into a boardroom meeting and it's like a classic, you know, CEO of a company yelling at everybody. Although he's not the CEO, Miller is the CEO and he murders Miller for having failed him on something and promotes a guy named Rucka, which I was like, is that a reference to Greg Rucka? The That's what I thought. To be. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Who I assume wrote Wonder Woman at some point or? Mm-hmm. When this was like, happening, uh, oh, okay. I believe. One of, and has written her again since and is one of the most acclaimed runs. Uh, if you're listening to this, read the Rucka Wonder Woman. Uh, he gets it and he's great. It's cool. good. That sequence that you're describing with uh, Aries, Josh, uh, reminded me of the uh, David Sandberg's Shazam. There were this. This is where, like, oh, visually, yeah. I started picturing, you know, like the the gods and and everything, and then kind of blending the sorcery, the old, and the I'm a new corporate scientist, like doctor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I I thought. You know, and I mean, again, we're all playing in the same sandbox, so I don't think that one is necessarily related to the other, but there were a handful of times, and that was one of them where I was like, oh, this made its way into a DC thing, like, (laughs) at one point, you know? Um, And so, basically, Ares is like, we've got to find a pilot who can do that impossible move that Steve Trevor just did to rip through time and space, Uh, which, (laughs) as far as starting off the movie, I'm like, that's a is kind of a low stakes weird thing for your villain. Find me the best pilot you can, <laughs> Rucka. Um, and then we meet uh, Diana, who is yeah full grown. And also apologies to listeners, both this and the Joss Whedon and the finished movie, they all have Hippolyta in her classic role. And then they just have a completely different array of other Amazons with different names who all kind of slot into similar things. There's a character in this Cleo, there's a Philippa, oh, I think are not names used in any of the other ones. They're tracking a lion in this opening scene when they find Steve Trevor. This all plays out kind of the classic beats where they're like, a oh, man, and, you know, we need to kill him. And Diana's like, no, we can't because I want to know more outside world, yada, yada. Apollo being like, you're too young, <laughs> so forth, debate killing him. <laughs> Uh, this uh, also introduces the idea of, I'm forgetting the exact word they use here, but basically the like trial by combat, which mm-hmm. is kind of from 
right, you were saying, it sounds like it's from the original comics, but in that it wasn't a trial by combat to determine Steve Trevor's fate. It was more like a contest to see who was most, most worthy to go out to the real world, correct? Once they had decided to send a champion, there was a contest to see who would win that, and then sort of like Robin Hood in disguise style, Diana secretly enters it uh, so that she can win and then reveal herself and you know simultaneously make her mother proud and break her heart because now she has to let her go. Yeah, so it's not nepotism. Hippolyta <laughs> does not pick her daughter just because it's her daughter. Like, she won that fair and square. Uh, and I'll just breeze through this dialogue here. This is um, similar to what we saw in the Donna Troy Hippolyta scene. This is Diana and Steve Trevor in the Hall of Ancestors and her, like, explaining the origin story while, you know, things come to life and whatever, as movies always got to do. But I do think it's interesting the, the ways in which they keep tweaking and re-explaining the basic building blocks of the setup. But Dinah's saying, this is the Hall of Ancestors. The history of the Amazon nation is told on these walls. Artemis, guardian of the innocent, keeper of women and children, goddess of the Amazons. Uh, we lived in the mortal world once when Athens and Thebes and Troy were at their glory. Women were property, like cattle, owned by their fathers or their husbands. They could be beaten, raped, killed at the whim of a man. In war we were spoils, in peace we were slaves. Artemis heard of the prayers of these women who would not be victims. She came, trained them, taught them, and they became something the world had never seen before. Warriors of peace, the Amazon nation. Ares, god of war, <laughs> father of destruction. Artemis's brother and her greatest enemy. He sought to plunge the mortal world into bloodshed forever. Ares made a terrible weapon to, uh, to help him create a world of unending war. But Artemis stole the weapon, placed it behind a portal of ancient stone, and set her Amazons to guard it. Doom's doorway. Guarding it is our sacred trust. The nation could not be defeated, not from the outside. Uh, the Queen Hippolyta fell in love with a great warrior, but he betrayed her, betrayed us all. He was an acolyte of Ares. It was not a battle, it was a slaughter. And at the moment when Ares was about to open Doom's doorway, it vanished in the Amazons with it, blah, blah, blah. The, as you were saying, that this whole island was created as a way to protect Doom's doorway. At this point, Diana does not know that Ares is her father, um, just that, that some nameless guy betrayed her mother. I will say also as like a Greek myth nerd, one thing I love that this script gets right is the sort of question of who the patron is for the Amazons, which in most of my favorite versions is some or all of the female gods of uh, Olympus, because while they all acknowledge Zeus, like uh, what you were saying earlier, like it's probably going to be Zeus in, in ideally it won't be in a Wonder Woman story because whether it's Aphrodite or Athena or Hera or Artemis, uh, it, it's it's the women of the Pantheon who sort of are protecting and look. And that maybe sounds pedantic, but like we have actual notes once again from the golden age where they were like, make sure when they're using expressions, use expressions that acknowledge the female goddesses because that's who are actually the patrons. Uh, and I know from outside of mythology, that probably doesn't seem like it's like, well, whatever, Zeus is the one people have heard of. Uh, but you know, it's, it's a thing I appreciated about this one. And the choice of Artemis makes a bunch of sense, obviously, as a hunter goddess uh, and a virgin goddess and mm -hmm. someone whose name is sometimes Diana. Uh, and she stays kind of an important character in the script. A little confusing. I'm sure if I read it correctly, there's a character of Migdala or something mm -hmm. that uh, Diana prays to or talks to on the island and then that ultimately realizes Artemis and Artemis kind of keeps appearing to her when she's out in the mm -hmm. real world. I also just wanted to highlight this one specific 
joke that I realized they kind of repurposed in a sense for the finished movie, which is when the Amazons are all jumping in front of Diana when she's with Steve Trevor with like spears out or whatever. And Steve Trevor's like, excuse me, I can handle this. Oh, and then a hundred spears come clattering to bear down on him. And he's like, on second thought, maybe I'll let you handle it. Having already accepted that she's stronger than him and rewatching the movie uh, just last night, I realized, oh, they kind of still do that bit where they're in like the alleyway and, you know, she blocks the bullet with his wrist and he's kind of like, yeah, you know what? I'll let you uh, do your thing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so they do this whole trial by combat thing. I don't think we need to get into a ton of detail about that um, since we obviously know where it's going. But she ends up, she fights her own mother in this and they kind of come to a draw at the end. Um, This I also think keeps the idea that uh, Hippolyta essentially is like, if you leave, you can never come back here. Which again, in the original myth, the original comics mythology, it's kind of like an honor, right? Like you get to go be our emissary to the human world. There's this is more some, dramatic, I get it. Yeah, there's some it. very sort of strong and different takes on that where sometimes like she can go and come back and sometimes like I think Greg Rucka has famously argued that like he finds the whole thing much stronger if she's choosing to give up her chance to come back mm-hmm. um, or her connection. And sort of, I, I'm kind of like, ooh, I like both versions. But. It's dramatic, I get it. <laughs> um, as far as cutting back and forth uh, to Aries, we're just kind of... I'll kind of gloss through a couple things so we don't have to keep jumping back to it. They find another pilot who tries to perform this move, can't do it, blows up. Uh, he's like, curse you, sidekick, Rekka. Uh, <laughs> I did like this bit, though, where Rekka refers to what they're trying to do is start World War Three, And Eris is like, you think that's what I'm doing? World War Three? My wars are not sequels, Rekka. Uh, which I was almost surprised was not in the Joss Whedon script, because I'm like, that's a very... <laughs> Joss Whedon-like joke (laughs) that Ares is essentially making pop culture movie jokes. Um, But he's been living in the human world pretending to be a businessman. But they've got like a whole underground thing. Um, It's all basic bad guy stuff. There's like going to be like a big uh, meeting at Camp David. They're kind of acting like they're building up to doing something bad there. But you kind of sense that Ares has bigger plans to just start a nonstop war. but Diana accompanies Steve Trevor. They like leave the island basically by just like walking through a mist and like waking up like yeah. kind of unconscious on the beach in the human world. Uh, and then some real crazy stuff starts happening. Um, but Steve's unconscious. Diana comes to, she sees a bunch of like frat bros terrorizing a homeless woman because they're like, this is a private beach, old hag. And they're going to like beat her up. Uh, so Wonder Woman comes to the rescue and beats the shit out of them, but they're basically like, you know who my dad is? He owns a dealership or whatever, that kind of lines. And they call like security on her. Um, security is actually able to apprehend her because while she's not paying attention, they slap handcuffs on her. Uh-oh, she lost mm-hmm. all her powers. Um, and then there's this whole running, other than the anger thing in the script, the other thing I would say about this script is this is the prostitute script. Prostitute. Where everybody keeps thinking that Wonder Woman is a prostitute because <laughs> uh, of the way she's dressed. I will say one of my favorite lines is uh, 
Smokey said they were legitimate women of commerce being held against their will. That, <laughs> that made me, I, I skipped ahead a little bit. I'll say <laughs> that, but, but yeah, but basically, yeah, everybody thinks. Also, yeah, they think she's a prostitute in the Whedon script as well. Like mm-hmm. lots of, I even wrote down, um, we are obsessed with prostitutes. <laughs> it is a, a weird recurring thing that they're like, somehow they think they can't make a Wonder Woman movie without being like, but does she resemble a sex worker? Let's invest investigate this question but not actually investigate anything about it just make a, a lot of jokes like which in some ways though they're able to get around in the finished movie because it takes place so far in the past mm. it's like even prostitutes didn't dress like that so they, it's more just the idea yeah, of I, like you're hardly wearing any clothes yeah so people and, feel like that woman's naked rather than wow a street is- worker Something that has sort of, sorry to Hector and Clark who have maybe heard me say versions of this a bunch of times, but uh, the issue of Wonder Woman's outfit is a really interesting one uh, because it is one of the things that is meaningfully different from the time when she was created. Uh, And this is a thing that I think, you know, it's one reason, as you just alluded to, that the World War I setting works for this is that like, when you, at the time they created Wonder Woman, people were still, you know, they had just, I think, finished arguing over whether women could go on beaches with high hemlines. Like, <laughs> there were uh, there were very real sort of, it is inappropriate to be showing any flesh kind of societal ideas that her outfit in, once again, it's doing two things at once and one of them kind of holds up better than the other. One is looking like a pinup girl and the other is really being a departure of like, you know, this is a, an outfit you can move around in. People in the comics acknowledge, like, there's women on the street being like, oh, it looks so convenient. And then another prudish woman being like, oh, she looks inappropriate. Yeah. Like, that's in the original, that it sort of has a range of reactions. And long story short, we are in a different place with different concerns than the world of 1941. And therefore, the statement it makes is an inherently different statement in our different context. And that's a very long version of why I love her outfit, but yes, she should be allowed to have pants because the boys get <laughs> pants and it's unfair. Uh, yeah, I think I think that the new movie 2017 was really lucky that by that point, the comic books of the past five, 10 years really refocused that. And they went, what if we redesigned her costume to still be as iconic as we can leave it, but let's give her the Roman Grecian like skirt. Gladiator. The gladiator. And they leaned into that. And all of a sudden it became less about how do we justify her wearing the 1970s Linda Carter outfit with whatever her background or her origin is. And instead it was like, yeah, this makes sense for the story. My struggle is, they tried to do the same thing with Superman and Batman wearing underpants on the outside of their costumes. And I think that like the reasons for that are also kind of bad uh, as opposed to just that's the thing where I'm like, you got to let it go and you have to let Superman wear red underwear and just say it's a Kryptonian (laughs) design because, (laughs) you know, if it's a tradition that stems from like them wearing the circus strongman type outfit uh, of the, the fabric and the cloth, which now, superhero costumes especially since batman and the dark knight and even the tim burton batman it's all rubberized or like you know tactical it's got to be like tact everything has to be tactical gear like it has to so then you get to superman okay he doesn't need anything tactically he's just he his strength is alien in nature okay well then let's make it really really alien and when you get rid of his red underpants it actually focuses more on the crotch like of the (laughs) costume so i think in a weird way in a weird almost like homophobic fear of them being like, well, we don't want this to be like, like 
gay or like inappropriate or anything. We don't want to call attention to Superman wearing underwear. You take it away and all of a sudden you're just, you're highlighting his nice bulge in a blue, you know, Henry Cavill and everything. They're constantly trying to make it darker and everything there. And I just feel like you have to let that still, I think that my idea of that costume has surpassed with the origins of it, where I don't think of it as underwear on the outside. I think of it as now that's Superman's costume, but that's because that's how I trained my brain after 30 years of reading comics. But with Wonder Woman, you can, and they did do a redesign to make it make more sense. So now that question of, is that a process? I don't think even has to come up once. Even if the Wonder Woman of the modern era today, she still technically is showing more skin than a Superman or a Batman or a Green Lantern or a Flash where all these guys are just covered head to toe, except for like mouth holes or head holes or hand holes. It's still un- unfortunate that Wonder Woman is showing the most skin, but... Like Amy said, there's there's a context there. I will say, Hector, this is we we've disagreed about this in the past, and I still this is like one of the one of the few places where I'm like I'm not with you, Hector. I do like <laughs> the you know there there is y'all know hmm. there's not much I like about the the yeah. Zack Snyder Superman. Uh, yeah. decisions that he made but I will say I I and not it's not the darker colors either it colors mm-hmm. I don't mind being bright but I do like the Henry Cavill suit um without it's a beautiful the design. boxers or the it's, yeah or trunks or whatever it's a beautiful it. design and it's a great answer to a problem but yeah. my thing is like I just never saw that as a problem but it is a great problem solving like it really is sure. it's, it's you're not going to get much better than that and then you get to the Ben Affleck suit, Batman suit, and I'm like, yeah, it looks great. It looks awesome. Sure. It my I have more issue with him killing people than I do with his underwear. <laughs> yeah. That's the that's, that's where the I priority. Start. That's the priority. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um I was also gonna note, uh, we're saying prostitute instead of sex workers, because that's what it says in the script. This is the yes. prostitute every script. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like a scene from like an 80s movie when they throw her into jail. <laughs> with all the other prostitutes who'd been arrested that night. And at first they're like giving her shit until she does something real strong. And then Which, she becomes like, the champion. <laughs> the direction where those become her girl gang and they wreak some havoc a la the 40s Etta Candy, I think I'd probably be down for. <laughs> yeah. Also, Amy, I mean, to that point, like I actually love, I wrote, this is one of my first notes. I love that Diana gets to learn the fish out of water lessons or some fish out of water lessons from a group of women because <laughs> usually it is Steve and, and you know, I think they handle it beautifully in the 2017 version, but usually it's Steve being like, oh, silly you, no, 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 that's not how we do things. And I love the notion that these women who are, you know, the, the script handles, not perfectly, but I do think it handles the idea of sex work and legitimizing women's work and like, you know, leaving these women alone if they if this is what they choose to do. Like, I, I think that it's actually quite clever because it comes up twice um, in the script. And um, and like that line that I mentioned when they get they break out and Smokey drives her to the, you know, to the next <laughs> Drops location. Drops off at the hospital, yeah. Exactly, yeah. But I, I think that that matters. I think it matters that women are teaching her some things. And it's why some of the best bits in 2017 end up being Etta Candy helping her pick out a new outfit and Etta Candy explaining sure. that suffragettes don't punch people, although they will if they have to, you know. Right. It's <laughs> these very cute little, like, uh, helping her integrate into the world kind of scenes. Um, but, yes, I'd be lying if I said I did not enjoy the whole her in prison and freeing all the other <laughs> prostitutes and making a break. I like that the cop derisively refers to as, her as Barbarella. 
thought that was a fun way to acknowledge her outfit in a uh, good way. Oh yeah, I also like that she break out. She's like, I they took my arrows and my dagger. I will need something sharp. So one of the prostitutes gives her her like insane stiletto heels, which she like uses like a uh, ninja star to throw through yeah, the bars. I actually liked that too because of my bugaboo about like uh you know people wearing heels for no reason in superhero comics and that this movie's like, you know what heels would be useful for? She'll get them from another character who's wearing them and use them as a weapon because that's exactly. very, like, <laughs> I was like, all right, points for that uh, beat. But as you said, though, she has them drive her to the hospital where Steve Trevor, who, you know, also had passed, walked through a mist and what was passed out on the beach. I'm not sure why they had to pass out. He's there with the Howlin' Commandos, uh, who are Doc, Papa Bear, Tex, and Preacher. Doc is the one female And Tex uh, is the token sexist who has uh, to be there for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> and then please, one of you, explain to me, because I tried Googling the name and just it was this mountain of confusing multi-generational stuff. And this Steve's girlfriend is named Vanessa Capitellis who is some DC character I knew nothing about and has like a mom character and. Okay. So Amy, you explain this, but I have thoughts on this, this situation when you're done. Oh yeah. Well, there's the separate questions of who is Vanessa Capitellis in the comics and how does this part of the storyline in this draft of the movie work? And let's just separate those right out. Uh, But uh, Vanessa in the comics is a really cool supporting character for the Wonder Woman mythos introduced during that George Perez run in the eighties that we were talking about. Uh, Because actually Clark, to your point, in that version of events, when Diana lands in the modern world, she finds, uh, end up getting mentored by a woman and uh, bonding with her daughter. So there's a sort of professor of ancient Greek stuff who's sort of able to like take her in. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I think she might have shown up in one of the books, one of the runs that we read on the show. I mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. remember this. Yes. And I, I think so. And I believe like she and her daughter gets used in a later storyline of sort of feeling abandoned by Diana because you know characters come in and out of comics and her daughter ends up becoming sort of a minor villain in a later incarnation. And they used that story for the recent animated movie Bloodlines by Margaret Scott that I believe we talked about uh, at some point when we yes. were going through this material. But the, so that's the Vanessa Capitellis and her mom are sort of classic supporting characters, at least going back to the 80s on and off in the Wonder Woman comics. But with all that said, you don't need to know any of that because this is just some girlfriend of Steve's who's named Vanessa. That's it. That's the end. <laughs> this was to me one of the biggest takeaways from this script that was to me a huge failing. Um, I really had a problem with this love triangle. I Why? really had a problem with the way it was handled. Um, I thought they were so, and I was disappointed. I mean, again, we, we, you've, Josh, you've given this disclaimer already, like, like, movies are made by committee in a lot of ways, especially this is a fourth draft. Exactly. There's especially... a reference in this movie that's like to the scene with the coat, and I went looking for it, and it's not in the movie. So we already know that they've been through yes. some stuff. So I cannot fault, you know, one person, but the idea of this like pitting women against women in a Wonder Woman movie, I'm like, first of all, no. Second of all, this Vanessa character, I honestly felt really bad for her. It's not it's not a good look for Steve. It makes Steve oh, look like a total- Oh, he seems like a real sure. asshole. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> she, like- she hasn't come up, uh, I- and, then, and it's a surprise, you've got a girlfriend and you broke her heart. 
Also, surprise, you were in the hospital and your girlfriend of two years is concerned about you and you're like, could you leave me alone? <laughs> you're kind of cramming my style. <laughs> found someone and, hotter than you. Leave me alone. Yeah. Or she's like, she's like, I ran around to bring you dinner because you just got out of the hospital and oh, you're at a bar with your friends and your secretary? <laughs> so like, I really felt for Vanessa in this, but then when they figure out, she figures out what's going on, like he doesn't love her anymore, she turns into a rage monster herself. She gets really angry at him. And I'm just like, this is so, you could just see the actress who would have to play this role in mm. 2000, whatever. And I just, I, this, this stuck, stuck out to me as a huge like sore thumb in this script this, really this feels like this feels like in superman returns where they made superman like a guy who left the planet and then comes back and lois lane has a five-year-old son and he's and she's dating uh james marsden and it just made all three of them look like jerks like it, i'm like <laughs> why put superman in that position even like Wait. it's it's and you know, also because James Marston was quite lovely in that movie. He like you nice. don't He's you, you don't want to dislike lovely. him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he keeps playing oh, yeah. the same role. Cyclops, <laughs> the notebook, enchanted. He just keeps Sonic, getting that role of super super good looking guy that the woman will inevitably leave for the, the better or different. Yeah, poor guy. Uh, yeah, whatever. But I, Clark, I, I'm I'm totally with you. This I, I didn't like I I was trying to guess why that sorry my why earlier was the like why is this happening of it all um and I'm assuming that they wanted there to be some kind of thing in the way of Diana and Steve just getting together and they wanted Diana to be sad about stuff so it gave her conflict but it it I just oh it does not work for me mm-hmm. because Vanessa mm-hmm. just gets her heart broken for no reason and like, I have to wonder since this is the fourth draft because what I thought was confusing and why I just gave up trying to research the character <laughs> is why this was this character from the sure. comic I wonder if in one of the earlier drafts she was the character from the comics mm. and just over the rewrite time they're like some note of whatever of like they wanted a love triangle and that just became the Vanessa character and who even knows what they were doing with her initially because right now i don't it's why why use that character name from the comics when there is no similarity whatsoever and it may yeah, just sometimes they may have wanted to include that like i could see lita caligridis who spoke a bit about how it, she thought it was exciting as a greek writer to be taking on wonder woman so she might have been like if i'm gonna add more supporting characters i want to pull from some of the like actual greek supporting characters in yeah. the mythos but you know i'm not sure that the role she ends up with is such a great tribute Sometimes this happens in comic book movies and sometimes it's stopped before it, before it goes too far. Like in the second Fantastic Four movie, the, the character who was like the army general guy that was going to be, that was played by Andre Brower from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, like the chief in that movie plays a, this army guy in Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer. He was going to be named Nick Fury. He was going mm. to be Nick Fury. And I think somebody somewhere along the line stopped it and went, wait, 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 we can actually do something with the character Nick Fury. Don't just have this be a name yeah. reference like mm. cameo, the way so many of these movies will will drop those for characters in the comic books or, oh, isn't that cute? Wink, wink. This character's named Jimmy Olsen. Get it? This is Agent Olsen. And then he gets shot in the head or whatever. It's like sometimes they let it go and sometimes it's stopped to be like, wait, we have plans and we can do something with this character later. Let's just make him a new character. Which is one thing I did appreciate in the Todd Elcott script is that I feel when you're going to do that wink, wink thing, yeah, name it after one of the publishers. Name it after a writer, Mm. an artist. Call the character a rucka. Don't just be like, what's a list of important characters from (laughs) this mythology that I don't know or care anything about? So Mm -hmm. um, 
Or if the character is not important, you can have fun with it. A great example is in the Thor movie. Uh, he puts that little name tag on that was like Dr. Jake Olson or whatever, Dr. Olson, which then Natalie Portman had to be like, oh, this is my, uh, did I did I misread that? Did I? It's not Jake Olson. What's the character's name? Um, Does he put uh, on a Donald Blake thing? Thank you. Not Jake Olson. Donald Blake. Jake Olson may have been another Thor secret identity later. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway. Donald Blake. Donald Blake is the name. There's a little sticker he puts on and Natalie Portman goes, oh, that was an ex-boyfriend. Donald Blake is a version of a Thor secret identity that was never going to work in the movie. So they just had fun with it. They left it in there. We were never going to meet Donald Blake. They were never going to bring in Donald Blake to be like, he's, he's, he's Chris Hemsworth when Hemsworth's not Hemsworth. It's like that. You're breaking the hearts of some Donald Blake fans out there right now. (laughs) Look, I'm a huge fan of the J. Michael Straczynski Thor run. And I like the way that character was utilized there, but that's a different mythos (laughs) working off of the different history of comic book Thor, which is different. But when you're starting from scratch, it's the best idea to not try to even include Donald Blake. And so that's why it's okay to have that little reference. No, no real hearts were broken there. <laughs> but if this, if this came out and this character were used, people would be like, that's a bummer. <laughs> um, well, back into the script. Why don't we have uh, you guys fire up your PDFs to read this scene? Cause we're here after, yeah, after Steve <laughs> cruelly dismisses with Vanessa, <sighs> um, Diana comes. There's actually some fun stuff. I like this section of the, the script where she, the, uh, sex workers had dropped her off and she's kind of breaking into the hospital and like actually have, has a bit in here that's something that kind of reappears in these other scripts and the finished movie where she's sees just the tv in the nurse's lounge is like on in the background and she kind of catches a glimpse of the news and is sort of realizing how like awful uh, earth actually is and all the horrible things that are just happening all the time i think the scene i have is aries yeah this okay. is because uh, basically some commandos led by Rucka break into Trevor's uh, room. I think his howling commandos have all left at the moment or outside. I don't quite remember how that goes out. But him and Diana gets them. They get up to the roof. And uh, we'll begin here with, you know, they're up on the roof. And an iron spear imp- impales Diana through the shoulder from behind. Diana looks around or looks at her, down at her shoulder in disbelief, and she is kicked forward, the spear wrenched out of her from behind as she sprawls across the floor, revealing Ares behind her, rising from the helicopter, flying. His body is poised with powerful ease on the buffeting wings. Uh, he wears black combat gear like his men, but over it, the hooded black cape we saw him in before. The cape billows like a cloud behind him, the wolf insignia glowing. They've established that his company has this, like, red wolf insignia glowing Ooh. dark red i am diana rose sorry, that was in response to her saying to the other commandos like who's next so that was like, like i am uh, got it i'll, I'll, have, I'll read that, that differently <laughs> i am yeah. i'm giving you line readings <laughs> um, <laughs> diana rolls to her knees cradling her injured arm gasping with pain as Ares touches down on the rooftop. The commandos immediately drop to one knee, faces to the ground, the attitude of worshipers. I don't, I don't think I quite established that. He runs this like company like a CEO, but they all know that he's Ares, the god of war. They don't like to think he's a human in disguise. It's kind of the idea that, a little bit like Hydra, I guess, in the Marvel movies, is that people from all around the world in positions of power also secretly work for... Ares' little super evil conglomerate. Um, yeah, Ares touched on the Rupath commandos, Neil, attitude of worshipers. Well, well, look at this. 
It's breastplate Barbie. Ares circles Diana, swinging the iron spear impatiently. I really don't have time for this. The schedule is tight as it is. Uh, panting, Diana looks up, uh, looks up at him. Thunder crashes in the sky. You, the spear of iron cannot be broken. Ares glances down at the bloodied spear in his hand, the same he carried in the opening. Hard-worked gray, gray-black metal, at once ancient and clearly lethal. Not very impressive for a signature weapon, I always thought. Apollo had silver arrows, Poseidon had a trident, and Zeus, I mean thunderbolts. Now there's something people remember. Of course, now the old geezer can't even raise a spark if he rubs his hands together, standing on a polyester carpet. Her hand presses hard against the wound to stanch the blood. Dana grits her teeth and lurches unsteadily to her feet. Ares, the god of war. Ares ignores her words, just keeps circling thoughtfully. So Artemis sent one of her little warrior wenches back with Trevor. Funny, I thought I knew all their faces, but I don't know yours. He looks at her, eyes curious, piercing. Yet, there's something familiar about you. With one finger, he touches Diana's blood on the tip of his spear, tasting her blood. Ares' eyes widen with sudden surprise. My, my. Tell me something, girl. Do you even know who you are? I'm Diana, princess of Themyscira, daughter of a queen and a god. Come to join the family business, have you, Diana of Themyscira? Diana is staring at him, fascinated in spite of herself. After all, she's getting her first look at her father. They say that you are a monster, sower of strife, bringer of chaos, he who wades through blood. Is that a yes? I've come to stop you. Ares regards her, then without warning, backhands her savagely across the face. Diana lands face down in the gravel rooftop sprawled over Trevor. I see your mother never bothered to teach you any manners. Diana pulls herself up on her hands and knees. She sees Trevor's eyes opening. He's coming around. Trevor freezes at the sight of Diana, communicating in the only way she can. With her eyes, she glances toward the commandos a foot away, still bowed down before Ares. The meaning of her look to Trevor is clear. Get ready. Trevor quickly closes his eyes, playing possum before Ares notices he's conscious as Ares drags Diana by, a back, by the back of her neck, pulling her roughly up to his face. Weak, foolish, and a girl. You are not worthy to be a child of mine. He kicks her back down to land in a heap next to Trevor. Ares looks down at her unimpressed. Worship, worshipper of a forgotten god from a backwater island in the middle of nowhere. You shouldn't have come here, Amazon. Trevor, eyes slitted, spots a gun in the thigh holster of the nearest commando. He tenses, getting ready. All the ancient gods have faded into shadows, grown weak and powerless, except for me. Ares gestures grandly at the city laid out below them, sparkling lights stretching to the horizon. This is my world now. Diana raises her head defiantly, cut lip trickling blood. And what will you do with it? Diana puts the tip of his spear to Diana's throat, lifting her jaw up with the sharp iron edge. What I have always done, unleash my wolves of war and let them tear mankind to shreds. Diana acts like she's listening, but she's reaching stealthily behind her for the lasso lying on the ground. I will see the world at war for all eternity. Diana looks up at him, eyes flashing with the same fury we saw in the hospital room. One thing my mother did teach me. On Diana's hand, groping blindly for the lasso and finding it. 
Only God-created weapons can pierce flesh such as yours. Then it cracks the lasso up like a whip. It snaps like lightning across Aerie's face, the golden strand gashing his forehead open. Ah! Aerie stumbles back, spear clattering to the ground. Trevor swipes the gun. Dana springs her feet, kicking Aerie's back with all her force. Uh, and Ares goes flying into the blades of the helicopter. With a shriek and a groan, they slam into Ares, splintering against his superhuman body. The commandos rush to the helicopter to help their master as Dana hops onto the roof ledge, cracking the lasso across the rooftops on the lasso's end. As it whips around the scaffolding pipe on a nearby building, Dana grabs Trevor by the waist and blah, 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 whisks him away. Hold on. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, And we're going to hit pause on our conversation right here and pick things up again in the next episode. I want to thank our guests, Amy Dallin, Hector Navarro, and Clark Wolf for joining us. You can find us on Instagram at Best Movies Never Made and on Twitter at Never Made Film, where we post pictures of concept art and script pages and all sorts of things. Uh, You might also want to check out the Electric Now app, which is a free app that allows you to watch movies and TV shows and more importantly, video from our podcast. So you can look at our faces while we're telling you about these wonderful unmade films. I want to give a special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge Network, including our producers, Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman. So until next time, this is Steve Scarlatta and Josh Miller saying we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.